You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. If you don't know me, my name is Marshall, one of the pastors here. It's my uh, joy and honor to proclaim uh, God's word this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, we're continuing our sermon series through the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. And as you can probably guess, from the content of what we read this morning, we are going to be covering one of Paul's more controversial passages um, in in the scriptures. And uh, being that I think you've already figured that out, let me let me just before we even get started, before we pray or anything like that, let me just say this because it, I, I I want to ensure I want you to at least give what I believe Paul is saying in First Corinthians fourteen a fair hearing. Um, we have to remember this morning. We have to remember that what Paul has to say to women here is governed by its context. Just three chapters ago, Paul gave instructions to female prophets. Just three chapters ago, Paul gave instructions to female prophets who were speaking in corporate worship. Not only were they instructions to continue doing so, but to continue doing so freely. Now, maybe you think that Paul is schizophrenic, right? Um, but I don't. Uh, I, I really don't. Um, I believe that the Paul of chapter 14 is the same Paul of chapter 11. And so what he is saying here in chapter 14 simply cannot be, although maybe at first glance, cannot be contradicting what he's saying in chapter 11. So what does Paul say? Well, we're going to get to that. But it's really important that we begin at verse 26. So I'm going to let us sit in that tension for a little bit. But if you will, give me grace and bear with me. And I promise you we'll get to it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Again, God, we're grateful to be gathered together as your people. I hope, God, that if nothing else over the last uh, few weeks, uh, as we come to the conclusion of what is this smaller portion of 1 Corinthians, where you're dealing with what it should look like when We gather together. I pray, if nothing else, God, um, that we've been made aware that something is happening here. That when we gather together, you're at work in some way. And God, we might not have uh, the words to be able to explain it all. We might not have our mind wrapped around all the the different um, concepts. Lord, we, we, we might just feel a sense of lack in our understanding. And yet, Father, I pray that even in that, Lord, you'd be drawing into us, drawing us into, in fact, a greater appreciation, a greater understanding, a greater experience of what it is that you would have us to experience when we are together, when your people who are called by your spirit and who are empowered by that same spirit with gifts for one another um, gather together. So, Lord, use these next few moments to do that. Use these next few moments to teach and instruct and care for and exhort and encourage all of us in the room, even, Lord, when at first reading we might think that that's not present. Be with us. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Chapter 14, starting in verse 26. Here's what's happening, right? 
uh, like I mentioned uh, the, over the last several weeks, we're sort of in this smaller excerpt of 1 Corinthians where Paul is dealing with explicit like situations that the church in Corinth in particular is dealing with. Okay, so this is hyper-contextual, meaning that we must, to the best that we can, we must try to understand not only the, the, the situation within the church in Corinth, but also the situation that surrounded the church in Corinth in the larger culture. Because if we don't, we'll be prone to make some, what I think, are uh, significant mistakes with our understanding. But here at the end, of, and we've done that really throughout this whole portion, right? From 11 and head coverings all the way up to now and this verse, or these sets of verses. Dug deep into those things. But Paul is getting extremely practical here at the end of chapter 14, right? What has he done so far? He's talked at length about the spiritual gifts. He's talked about uh, how among the spiritual gifts or, or that Above those spiritual gifts is love, that that is what is prime, that is what should be primal in the church. And now he's going to describe in very practical terms what it will look like for love to govern the exercise of the spiritual gifts in Corinth. You see, when lovingly exercised, the gifts of the Holy Spirit will produce a church that is actively building itself up. And at the same time, it will produce a church that is filled with peace and with order. And so what that means is that on, on the other hand, where there is tearing down, where there is strife, where there is disorder in the church, in those instances, we are out of step with the Spirit, which according to chapter 13 is to say we are out of step with the way of love. And so let's keep in mind that what's happening here is the Corinthians, the, the Christians in the church in Corinth were jockeying for position. Right? From all the way back in chapter 1, they're following divergent teachings, they're ignoring the poor, they're suing one another. Everyone was talking at once, and some people were getting drunk on the communion wine. So there's a context to Paul's instruction that we really struggle to visualize. Like, like most of you in here, if these lights were on motion, they would, they would turn off. Seriously. I'm just saying. But the Corinthians, the Corinthians would have known exactly what Paul was talking about. So if some of these verses seem like they're coming at us out of nowhere, that's primarily because this letter was not written to us. It was written for us, but it was not written to us. And this entire passage is about knowing when to speak and when to remain silent in corporate worship and to always act out of concern for the building up and strengthening of the body, the church of God. You see, if Paul were to visit our Sunday gathering, he would probably not accuse us of being disorderly. And yet, there are plenty of things for us to learn and apply from these few verses. And so, starting in 26, this is what Paul says. He picks up by saying this. 
What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there only be two or at most three, and each in turn. Let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Paul is giving instructions, again, right, to people who speak in tongues. We talked about that last week, and so I won't delve into what that is, but essentially uh, it is unintelligible speech. It's speech that we uh, wouldn't normally understand, which is why Paul um, says that the goal of the corporate gathering is that the church would be built up. So everything that takes place from the beginning of the gathering to the end of the gathering should be done with the greater good of the congregation in mind. And if that's the goal, Paul says there should only be two, maybe three people who speak in tongues and that they should take turns when doing it. And that upon their doing it, there should be someone there to interpret it. Otherwise, they should be silent. They are not to inject confusion into the church by speaking things that others cannot understand. Paul's primary concern. Now, what we don't what we don't realize here is that this instruction that Paul is giving is countercultural. In a pagan worship service at this time, the worshipers would work themselves into a frenzy, into ecstatic trances, right? And this was a highly personal, highly individualized experience in the pagan worship gathering, right? It was self-oriented, self-focused. And it's in light of that that Paul wants to ensure that Christian worship in Corinth was intelligible, that it was able to be understood by those who were present, and that it was modest, not showy, not, not uh, as if by your body language or your speech you needed to sort of manifest uh, a, a better experience than your neighbor. Because the gathering is intended for mutual upbuilding. We touched on this last week, right? So, so what does it mean for us? Well, in Corinth, everybody had something to say. Everybody was coming into corporate worship with something for everybody else. That's what he said in verse 26 and 27. And the result was chaos. Yet, as we've said the last few weeks, there's something of a, of a rebuke here for us, isn't there? Because often we come into corporate worship intending only to receive, right? We listen, we learn, and we leave. We don't always see this as an opportunity to contribute or to serve or to build up. And yet, there are so many ways to do that on a Sunday morning. And so I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, even in the smallest of things, to pursue them knowing that you are in fact following in the instruction of Paul when you do them. So, for example, what, pastor? Well, you can join one of our volunteer teams. You can greet your neighbor with a smile and say, peace be with you. You can sing loudly and with energy and so serve your neighbor 
You can pray the prayers and read the scripture with joy and with vigor. You can arrive early maybe, like to meet people. You can take somebody to lunch. Or you can simply, for the introvert, you can just sit quietly and pray for the people around you. There's so many ways. So many ways to build up the body on Sunday morning. So many ways that I, I ultimately don't believe we've walked in the fullness of. And I hope that the challenge for us here is that we'd be okay with some chaos if it meant that we would have to lean on the rules. Because we were all so eager to serve one another. Because we were all so eager to hear from the Lord this morning. Because we were all so eager to praise Him and to continue praising Him. Because we were all so eager to pray for one another, right? Like To actually have to rein some of that in would be nice. So listen, our corporate worship is, I, I, don't, I don't even need to use the word likely. Our corporate worship is much more ordered than worship would have been in Corinth. But that doesn't mean that we get to come empty-handed. We gather together looking to build one another up, and when everyone comes in with that mindset, we all leave strengthened and encouraged. That's how it works. We talked about that last week. But on the other hand, anything that does not build up shouldn't be done, right? That's essentially what he's saying there. You're coming with all of these different things. And it's not that these things are bad in and of themselves. It's just that they're being done without concern for what it means for the greater whole. When the exercise of a gift does not build up the church, we welcome division into the church via the very gift that was given to build it up. And that is a tragic misuse of the gift. It grieves the Holy Spirit, grieves the giver of that gift. It's like if you're, it's like if you were to give your child a gift, a, a toy, and then they went and used it to beat up their sibling. We do this when we use Bible knowledge to glorify ourselves to the discouragement of others. We do this. Um, when we speak true words, but in unhelpful ways, 1 Corinthians 13 says, right? You can speak in the tongues of men and angels, but if you have not love, you sound like a clanging gong. We do this really any time that we elevate a gift of the Spirit above the fruit of the Spirit. Keep reading. 29. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now the word peace there is a Greek translation of a Hebrew word that some of us may have heard before. It's the word shalom. And the word shalom is used to describe complex, multifaceted things that are held together with a sense of wholeness and a sense of harmony. So within the church, it means that we are all working together despite our differences 
for the good of one another so that peace is not just the absence of conflict among us, but the presence of an active love for one another. Our worship, Paul essentially is saying, our worship should bring an end to strife and foster peace among us. And so Paul turns his attention to men and women exercising the gift of prophecy in corporate worship. Right? He addressed tongues, which he also addressed last week, and then he's now addressing the prophets, the male and female prophets, by the way, as Paul made so very clear in 1 Corinthians 11. And Paul says again, right, two to three speakers are enough. The others who were present were to weigh carefully what was said, right? So tongues should always be interpreted in the context of the larger gathering, and prophecy should always be judged, should always be weighed. And what does it mean to judge? Well, it, it means that collectively, we need to know enough about the Bible to distinguish between God-given speech that coheres with God's Word the scriptures, and the situation at hand, and anything that is less than that. We need to be able to tell the difference. We need to know enough of God's word that if somebody gets up here and says something that is not God's word or does not fall in line with God's word, you can point it out and call foul. So Paul advocates for this, again, participation of the whole body in the corporate gathering. And he advocates for this, this interesting sort of protocol, which you would think is, is kind of strange. He says, if one of the prophets is speaking and somebody else receives a revelation while the prophetic gift is being exercised, this person, the one that's already talking, should, should be silenced. Like that this person who's talking should show deference to the new the new speaker. And for most of us, it's like, wait a minute, that's called interrupting. And I learned early on in life that that is uh, culturally uh, taboo. What's Paul doing? Again, he's encouraging. He's encouraging even those with what are considered the higher gifts to think first about the good of the whole congregation. And if the Spirit is working in and through another person in such a significant way that it would be actually to their detriment for them not to speak, you should provide the opportunity for them to speak. And so he's telling, look, even you with the higher gifts, you need to hold those gifts humbly. You need to be open to the Spirit working through someone else among you. And so he instructs them to, again, wait their turn because the goal is not that your words get heard, but that the church is built up. That the church might be instructed and encouraged or consoled, as we found out, is the content of prophecy. And he says that the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. In other words, he's saying that prophets are perfectly able to exercise self-control when they prophesy. 
even if your speech is genuinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, you can still control where, when, what, and how long you speak, is what Paul is saying. And so again, Paul is inviting this church that is very, very messy, very, very chaotic in their gatherings together. And he's saying, listen, our God is a God who speaks. And he speaks through us, men and women. But our God is not a God of disorder. He's not a God of chaos. Scripture, all throughout Scripture, reveals to us a God who acts coherently and decisively. And so, for the Holy Spirit to produce disorder among God's people would be a radical departure from His character. God does not inspire us to produce chaos in His church. That's what Paul is saying. In the words of James 3, 17, it says this, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. You begin to get a sense of the way that Paul would have the believers conduct themselves. Again, a mature Christian will know how and when to deliver a powerful word so that it builds up everybody. Spontaneity is no guarantee of genuine spirituality, and spontaneity is no justification for careless or thoughtless speech. And so he's telling the prophets, you must be disciplined in your speech, and you must be disciplined by what? The law of love that he talked about in 1 Corinthians 13. So here's our takeaway. Paul pictures a church in which all the members wait together for the Holy Spirit to move. Each person is ready, right? Each person's got something. Each, each, each person's got a bullet in the clip, if you will, right? Each one of them is ready, and yet each person is also willing to hear. Each person is learning to distinguish between truth and error. Listen, the Lord will speak to His people. He promises to do so. He sent His Spirit, in fact, to do that, to ensure that we were able to do that, to empower and equip us to see to it that that would happen. But we can never, we can never be tempted to believe that our flesh is so far from us that it would never intrude. That we would never be tempted to elevate ourselves instead of the Lord. That we would never be tempted to say something that is beneficial for us or that aligns with sort of our, our current mode of thinking and that that's really sort of the direction we want to steer God's people in as opposed to letting God do it himself. Now let's get to the, the dicey part. <laughs> Halfway through verse 33, it says this. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. 
Now, deep breath. You okay? All right. Listen, the Old Testament prophets, all right, so this is before Jesus came, the Old Testament prophets taught Israel to expect that with the coming of the new covenant, the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon the church such that women would prophesy. Do I need to say that again? The Old Testament prophets taught Israel to expect that with the coming of the new covenant, the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon the church such that women would prophesy. Let's read this from Acts chapter 2. And this, oddly enough, in Acts chapter 2, written after Jesus, is directly quoting Joel chapter 2, written before Jesus came. And this is what Joel chapter 2 says, read from Acts chapter 2. It says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and even your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they, all of them, shall prophesy. So the new covenant that is established in the coming of Jesus, this new way of relating to God through Jesus instead of through our ability to keep the law, this new covenant opens the gift of prophecy to everyone, including women. The Holy Spirit had been poured out upon this church in Corinth, and so we should expect to see women prophesy, and in fact, they were, right? Evidence of that in chapter 11. Not only that, Paul commended that practice just three chapters ago. So why would Paul write these words here? It's the million-dollar question this morning. And if you're worried, that's not my salary. Gotta, some levity is good, right? Well, let's first, again, consider the context. These verses take up much of the vocabulary that we read in the previous verses. Paul repeatedly prohibits speech that produces chaos or confusion. In verse 28, he instructs tongue talkers to keep silent if there is no one there to interpret. In verse 30, the prophets, he tells them to keep silent when another prophet is speaking. And in verse 34, he instructs the women or the wives to keep silent. But when and under what conditions? Well, the only conceivable condition is given in verse 35, right? If there's anything they desire to learn, or in other words, if they have any questions, that's the condition in which, under which they are to keep silent. So we know from chapter 11 that Paul cannot be making a universal prohibition against females speaking in the corporate gathering. He can't be saying that. And presumably, the Corinthians would have known exactly what he was talking about. 2,000 years later, it's a little bit more difficult. Here's the reality. We simply do not know what problem Paul could have been addressing, but I think there are two primary options. Option one is this. Paul is prohibiting wives from publicly questioning their husband's prophecies. You may remember from chapter 11 that the Greek word translated as woman can refer either to woman or to wife. The meaning is determined by the context, but in these verses, you can make a good case for translating the word as wives, because Paul goes on to address the husbands 
or reference their husbands. So within the context of everything Paul has been saying, one interpretation, option one, is that Paul is prohibiting wives from questioning their husbands in front of the congregation. Paul is essentially saying this to wives. uh, When your husband shares a prophecy and the congregation comes together to weigh what he says, why don't you sit this one out? Don't shame him, right, in front of the public assembly. Let everyone else take care of that, right? Now, you can imagine, right? You can imagine how awkward it would be if my wife right now were to verbalize her displeasure with this sermon out loud as the sermon is being delivered, right? Even modern Americans would consider that improper, So listen, she may disagree with me and with what I say, but one way to honor me in this situation would be to wait till we get home to let me know about it. So it's significant that the word, the Greek word that's translated here as shameful may simply refer to embarrassment. The word shameful sounds really harsh to our Western ears, but we have to remember that Paul is speaking into an honor-shame culture, and so that word would not have had all the same connotations that we associate with it. A better translation might just be improper. It's improper for wives to question their husbands in public in the corporate gathering. It's a breach of decorum. That's option one. This is option two. Option two is this. Paul is prohibiting women from speaking while others are speaking. Paul is simply asking the women to show respect for the person speaking, which, by the way, might very well have been a woman, which Paul has clearly allowed for, even encouraged. Perhaps the women have a good reason for speaking while another's speaking. It's not just that they're chatty, right? It's not what Paul is getting at here. It might be that they actually have a question, like that they lack information. But then why would Paul single out women? Right? Why wouldn't he say, if a man or a woman has a question in church, ask it when you get home? Well, first of all, there's a language barrier that's in play here that most of us probably aren't aware of. Greek was the only common language spoken in Corinth that would have been the language spoken by the prophets in corporate worship. But many Corinthian women in particular would have lacked a robust Greek vocabulary. Women may have received some informal education in the home, but the comparative lack of mental stimulation would have resulted in difficulties, especially in the corporate gathering setting. Now listen, I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying that that was the reality here. It would have been the reality of the time. Kenneth Bailey was an American missionary who spent 40 years teaching and pastoring in Egypt, Lebanon, Palestine, Israel, and Cyprus. And he wrote the following in a commentary on this same passage. He said this, I've preached in villages and village churches in Egypt where the women were seated on one side of the church and the men on the other. This was a common practice in ancient synagogues. There was a wooden partition about six feet high separating the two sections. 
I preached in simple, colloquial Arabic, but the women were often illiterate, and the preacher was expected to preach for at least an hour, so we had problems. The women quickly passed the limit of their attention span. The children were seated with them, and chatting inevitably broke out among the women. The chatting would at times become so loud that no one could hear the preacher. These villages had no electricity and no sound amplification, so one of the senior elders would stand up and in a desperate voice shout, let the women be silent in the church, and we would proceed. After about 10 minutes, the scene would repeat. Again, I'm not making a value statement as to that reality. I'm just saying that this is quite possible that this is something that it could have looked like, something that Paul is speaking to. So if option number two is right, then Paul is saying, ladies, we're trying to maintain order, but things have gotten a little out of hand. I've asked the tongue talkers not to contribute to the chaos. I've asked the prophets not to contribute to the chaos. Please also refrain from speaking so that you can listen to the men and the women who are trying to speak a prophetic word. And if you have questions, rather than interrupting the prophetic word, wait till you get home. According to that interpretation, option number two, the requirement that women should be in submission might simply mean that the women should subject themselves to the teaching that they shouldn't try to speak over it. Like tongue talkers with no interpreter, like prophets who just don't know when to stop. Some of you are thinking about me right now. The women should refrain from disturbing the peace and clarity of corporate worship. So whether we go with option one or whether we go with option two or something else entirely, Paul expects women to participate in corporate worship while he is addressing specific problems that were causing disorder in Corinth. And within that context, he instructs the women to exercise deference and self-control so that everyone can be built up and encouraged. And that's about as good as I can do with that. And all I mean by that is not that, I, not that I'm afraid of the explanation or anything like that. I wish I could drill down to one or the other options, and I, I certainly have thoughts on those things, but at the end of the day, the principle still remains, right? The principle remains the same, and that is no matter how our culture expresses itself, the overarching principle is that when we gather together, we should be thinking primarily about one another, and every word that we speak, everything that we utter should be done with that in mind. Whether you are a male in the room this morning or whether you are a female in the room this morning, that is the overarching principle. Irrespective of whatever complexities presented themselves in Corinth in around 50 AD. And it's with that that we read the final verses that say this. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Now, let's be clear. Paul is no longer talking to just women. He addresses the entire Corinthian church with a masculine plural you, a, a, a y'all, if you will. And he is summarizing for us chapters 12 through 14. All things should be done decently 
in order, as an act of love for God and others. This is a command of the Lord. In each of these three applications, the tongues with no interpreter, the prophet who won't stop, and the woman for whatever reason who has questions that that should go unanswered for a time. In all three of those applications, that is what Paul is calling for. That all things be done decently and in order as an expression of love, both for God and for one another. And so we're not called to platform or promote our own gifting. But just like Jesus, Paul is calling them to lay aside their self-interest and act in the interest of the church. Now let's be abundantly clear. Paul's emphasis on order rather than disorder was primarily a call for Christians to reflect the sort of God they were worshiping. Right? To worship a pagan God, a chaotic God, was expressed in chaotic worship, was expressed in chaotic relationships, both with that God or that deity and the other practicers of that religion. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. God is not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. And so our worship of him should also be ordered. It should reflect him, not only to one another here, but to those who are outside of the body who we would long to invite in. see that idea of chaos versus order all throughout the scriptures, and we don't have time to go through them all now, but suffice it to say that we worship a God who through love is bringing order to chaos, right? The Garden of Eden was ordered. In fact, Adam was placed there to further order it, was he not? But what happened? Our sin entered the picture, and what happened? Disorder entered the garden. Disorder entered the world. Because of that rejection, the entire cosmos has been plunged into that chaos. But the man, Jesus Christ, has come. And he stood tall in the midst of that chaos, seeing the world for more than just its chaos. In his crucifixion and in his death, he was plunged into it. He was plunged into that chaos, and in his resurrection, he began the work of restoring all things to their proper place. So we worship a God and King who, through love, is actively bringing chaos to order. Our gatherings should reveal that. Secondarily, Paul's emphasis on order rather than disorder was a call for Christians to distinguish their worship from pagan worship. We've already said that. But that's why he says in those final two verses, earnestly desire to prophesy, do not forbid speaking in tongues. Those are gifts from God that we should experience together. We should ask the Lord for those things. We should long to see those things manifest among us, but all things should be done decently and in order. So again, Paul's not trying to limit the gifts. He's not trying to say that we shouldn't prophesy or that tongues shouldn't be present in the gathered church. He's just saying that they should be subjected to order and decency. Now, some of us might be sitting here going, that's a paradox. 
brothers and sisters, I want you to prophesy, speak in tongues, and I want you to maintain an orderly learning environment. We don't often see churches living in this delicate balance, and so Paul's vision for corporate worship is neither stiff formality, which if we're going to put ourselves in a camp, let's just be honest, nor is it undisciplined frenzy. And I know some camps that are like that. So as we ponder Paul's instructions, I hope, my hope is, that we will be led to pray for gifting, especially the gift of prophecy. Now listen, that, that might not fit with your framework. You may not have a category for everything that Paul is talking about here, but we can together pray for more of the Holy Spirit. And we can be open to his prompting when he answers that prayer. Right? John chapter 16, what did, what did Jesus say to his disciples? He said, it's to your advantage that I go away so that the Holy Spirit, the Counselor, the Helper might come. And isn't this just the perfect example of what Paul is talking about in the gathered church? Jesus essentially in John 16 is saying, I'm willing to take a seat so that another might be given the chance to speak namely the Holy Spirit. And in this case, here's the fun part. How does the Holy Spirit speak? Well, of course, number one, he inspired Scripture, but number two, he equips the saints to love one another into maturity. He speaks through us to one another, and he speaks through us to the world. The Bible governs everything we do. We talk about that every week, right? But underneath that authority, the Holy Spirit speaks through you and through me. And so, if given the choice between having Jesus here with us in the flesh and having His Spirit here in our midst, we should choose to have the Spirit. That's what Jesus said. That's kind of wild to think, isn't it? Right, what was that question you were always asked in high school? If you could meet one person from history, who would it be? And everyone's like, Jesus! If you were raised in a Christian home. Jesus is saying, no way, man. Holy Spirit, go to the church. Go where the Spirit is. Go where the Spirit is being manifest. That's better. That's actually why I left. That's wild. And again, I don't know what the fullness of that means or looks like, but I want to be a part of it. I hope you do too. Because that's what we're going to be asking the Lord to do in light of this, in light of this text. I really believe that Jesus has a picture in mind when he says that, and it's a picture of you and me equipped with a Bible inspired by the Holy Spirit, a gift or two given to us by the Holy Spirit, loving one another by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says, that's worth me leaving. If that's what's coming after, I'm out. I'm gone. And that's what's true of us right now in this very room. So let's pray for the higher gifts, especially prophecy. But rather than taking a quiz online to determine your spiritual gifting, let's just keep loving the people around us. Because if we do that well, those people will be able to tell you precisely how the Holy Spirit has gifted you. It's not rocket science, but it's not easy either. So let's pray for help. Father, thank you for this morning. Again, God, pray that you'd be with us. 
pray that by your spirit you would empower and equip, Lord, that you would um, send your spirit in such a way, God, that um, that maybe, Lord, I don't even have words to express. But, Lord, I just pray that, I pray that whatever it is that you would have done among us, that you would do it. And, Lord, that we wouldn't stand as barriers in the way of that. That our hearts would be open, that our ears would be open, that our eyes would be open, that our hands would be ready to serve. And, God, that you would just... You would just lead us in your sovereignty and in your grace and by the power of your spirit. And I pray, Father, just that day by day by day, we would be made more like your son, Jesus. As we submit ourselves both to your word and to the working out of the gifts for one another's good. Only you can do that. So we pray that that would be so by your power. In Jesus' name, amen.